Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact, what they struggle with, and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network, in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. So enjoy listening to Social Founder Stories. Send us lots of feedback. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast and also to our newsletter at www.socialfounder.org. We'd love to keep in touch with you. Truin Restoric is the founder of two innovative and high-impact UK charities, Global Action Plan and Hubbub. Truin's interview for Social Founder Stories is full of advice and insights on how to create and scale a social enterprise. Truin talks about what he calls founder spirit, sharing insights into the key stages he's been through to create both financial sustainability and social impact, from starting up to letting go and then starting again. He covers a range of areas, from boards to working with corporates, values and credibility, business plans and trading companies, creative campaigns and legacy. And along the way, there's talk of frogs and lily pads, plastic fishing and fun, teams and transformation. Enjoy listening. So I set up Global Action Plan about 30 years ago. I was at the time head of fundraising at Friends of the Earth. So massively interested in environmental issues, but mm. increasingly at Friends of the Earth, they're a brilliant organisation, very campaigny. Yes. And I was actually finding myself much more solutions-based. And it became incredibly difficult to oh, keep raising money for something where my sort of views were slightly different to yeah. the organisation. Yeah, yeah. But actually, you must have learned so much. Because Friends of the Earth in those days was actually, in a funny kind of way, more radical Completely, yes. I mean, Friends of the Earth at the time was led by Jonathan Porritt. It would campaigning, basically help phase out CFCs. It was a rainforest campaign. It was cutting-edge environmental campaigning. You learned so much about what to do well, but also you learned what not to do because it was a, a sort of it's sort of like a radical student hub, really, and it did some yeah. brilliant things. But organisationally, sometimes it was a bit bit chaotic. So you were there and yeah. you, you learned loads and you, you started to, to want to focus more on solutions. So what That's did, right. What did you do? How long were you there for, actually? Uh, oh, about, about seven years, oh, six so quite, years. Quite a long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and had done a variety of jobs, so had seen the organisation from every which way. And the organisation was expanding massively at the time Brilliant. as well. So, so. You, you, it was like an incredible university for seven years. You, exactly. You learned yeah. so much. Yeah. That, that's good. Yeah. Do you think that's important, actually, to, to have that background before you jump into setting something up? Or? I, I think it would... I don't think I could have done it without it. Mm. Um, and I don't think I could have done it without learning so many different bits of the organisation. So I started off as a campaigner, somehow ended up in fundraising, trying to raise, I think at the time, about £5 million a year. So I learned a lot about marketing, direct marketing, how do you communicate with people. So it was that breadth of experience yeah. and obviously money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, all of that was, was essential. And actually, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do the, the first startup without that background. So what did you do? Tell us. So, so I saw an advert in the paper for a Global Action Plan. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And it was one of those great adverts which sort of promised a lot, but when you actually delved behind it, uh-huh. didn't have anything underneath it. So it was a concept that was developed uh, jointly in the United States and the Netherlands around the idea about creating almost like an environmental Weight Watchers. So they called it eco-teams. But how do you bring teams of people together, households, yeah. to, to live more sustainably? Yeah. Which at that time was quite a radical concept. And was it an organisation? Um, it was or? just, yeah, right. it was sort of two people and a dog type organisation, uh-huh. but it actually didn't exist in the UK. Right. So basically the concept was there. So I, it was sort of part founder really in that, that the organisational idea existed, but how do you make that happen in the UK? Yeah. And how do you fundraise? There was no money. And how do you make it actually deliver impact? And how do you deliver? So, so I'd seen this advert, this grand name, Global yeah. Action Plan. <laughs> Funny. And, and then it was like, well, you know, we haven't got an office, we haven't got a computer. <laughs> Off you go. Mm, um, mm. And, and it was incredibly hand-to-mouth uh, for probably two or three years of really hard work, feeling like you're not really getting anywhere. Yeah. Um, Were you able to pay yourself a salary? Uh, just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think every... Startup I've done, my salary has gone down. <laughs> um, and There's actually some interesting research that came out recently that even in the amongst commercial startups, the founders underpay themselves. Yes, apparently it's a classic thing. Yes, and I bet actually if we did some research around social founders, I bet you'll see exactly the same completely. thing. Completely, and the people I've spoken to have set up so many do it. I mean, the idea of global action plans started with: can you get groups of people to take practical action together? Uh-huh. Uh, that addresses environmental challenges like climate change, waste, water use, transport. Mm. So it was a very sort of community, individual-focused uh, thing. And way, way, way too early <laughs> in terms of where the public were at. And it was like, how do you create an organisation around this concept and make it work financially yeah. uh, and deliver impact? Yeah. Um, and that, that was basically, you know, the first two or three years was trying to deal with that conundrum. Because when I first came across Global Action Plan and you, you were working deeply with Sky yeah. and probably other media partners as well and doing amazing stuff all over schools yeah. and young people. Yeah. So going back to the beginning again, did you have a vision for what it would be? 10 years on, 15 no, years on? Or no, was it sort of more, did it, evol- it evolve? It, it, it totally evolved. And it evolved by piggybacking on things that started to happen externally. So it started, there was a thing years ago called Local Agenda 21, which was local authorities signing yeah. up to commitments made at Rio. Um, and that gave us our first foothold. 
And then gradually what happened was as environmental awareness grew and different sort of sectors of the community started to get interested, I always describe it as like a, a sort of frog going from lily pad to lily pad. You know, you always leapt to the next I point. I love it. I love it. That's um, a great idea of social founders being frogs. Yeah. <laughs> or was it the organisation? Is it the founder who's the frog or the organisation that's the frog? Anyway, we kept, <laughs> we kept jumping onto our lily pads. And, you know, Sky, we were incredibly lucky or good enough, I don't know what, to become Sky's charity partner, yeah. which for an organisation the size of Global Action Plan, we, we were up against you know, people like WWF and we somehow secured it. And that partnership was transformative. But I think over the, I mean, I was there for 20 years. O- over the years, there were, at different times, there were different yeah. lily pads, if you like, yeah. which we landed on. Let's go right back to the starting of the organisation, because a lot of our listeners are actually not social founders yet and are thinking of becoming a mm. social founder. What did you do? How, who did you bring around you? How did you did you set it up as a charity straight away or as a company? What? Did, how did you actually go about the process of setting up an organisation? Yeah. So I think the, the, it's a very very lonely business setting up any social enterprise. Oh, this um, is a theme that comes out again and again from our founders. Yeah, and I think you need to surround yourself with great advice uh-huh. you need to surround yourself with people who've got great access to others uh-huh. uh, and actually you need to surround yourself by people who will support you and share your aims yes. um, so at Global Action Plan I was incredibly fortunate that I had two two people who were willing to volunteer because there was no money mm. um, but sort of joined with me at the beginning um, as volunteers, As volunteers on the on the, the doing the team, the doing bit. Not, yeah. did, what about trustees? And... So the trustees, um, it was basically sort of raiding contact books from Friends of the Earth. So you had to find yeah a group of trustees. Yeah. There, there was two already in place. Uh-huh. So it's how do you bring the others in? Mm. That and it's, that sort of sets the culture yeah. for for the business yeah. or the organisation. It, it, and so how did you go about that? Because that's, uh, that's another theme that comes up again and again, is how do we find the right trustees? Yeah. What, do you go for the really high-powered ones or do you go for the ones who aren't going to challenge too much but be your friends? Or so we, What did you do? So we didn't go for the great and the good. Uh-huh. Um, so we wanted people who were active, mm-hmm. who had skills that we needed yeah. and who had great contacts. Great. So, uh, so we basically mapped out the skills we'd like to have uh-huh. on the boards, legal or marketing or environmental credentials. So it's like everything that, you know, when you go and pitch whatever you're pitching yeah. to an organisation, you always know they're like, well, how can we trust you with your environmental statements? How can we trust you with this? And if you have a board of trustees or directors where you can say, well, we've got a professor so-and-so or this well-known person, Backing us, and I think that was my biggest shock when I left. You know, when you're at Friends of the Earth, you pick up the phone, and the, the organisation you're calling might absolutely hate Friends of the Earth, <laughs> but they still pick up the phone yeah. and they respond. Yeah. When you're at a startup, nobody wants to talk to you. It's like, who the hell are you? Yes. You know, why should I even bother? Yeah. And it's how do you get, how do you get your name? How do you get that? your message out there when nobody wants to listen what did you do so what we did was again it was a contact there was a politician at the time was the shadow environment uh, mp Mm. uh peter ainsworth and i said to him you know i've had this like crisis moment i'm setting up a startup Uh, i need some help will will you host a room 
for me at the House of Commons so I can sort of tell people what I want to do. Fantastic. Um, and he fortunately said yes. Rooms at the House of Commons at the time were free, so yeah. that was good. Yeah. Um, and then what we could do is we could send a joint message to everyone to reach from Peter Ainsworth MP and ourselves saying, come along to the House of Commons and hear what we've got to say. So what a great way to start. Yeah. And I think my advice to anybody starting up is how do you build credibility around what you're doing and substance? Mm-hmm. A lot of local constituency MPs would love probably to hear startup stories. They're always looking for good news from their constituency. So go and try and talk to your MP and see yeah. what support that they might be able to provide. That's um, a great advice. Because having that, that backing is, yeah. is, is gold dust. Thank really you. And, and those, as you say, those rooms at the House of Commons where they're always looking for events, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Or, or locally. Yeah, exactly. And did you have any money at the time? Had you raised money uh, to begin I, with? Or did you, did you start with the idea and then go for the fundraising? Uh, so um, started with the idea, mm. then raided the contact list uh, <laughs> there was a wonderful there's a piracy theme going here yeah, i think uh, there was a wonderful uh, person who i knew uh, who had a family charitable trust and invited me in to pitch the idea to his two children and said if you can convince my two children that our Whoa. family trust should invest in you then yeah. we will yeah. and that was brilliant because you have to explain something to an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old so the money came through uh, through Charitable Foundation to start with. And then at that House of Commons event I mentioned, uh, it was one of those moments where somebody from British Gas stood up and said, I think this is an absolutely amazing idea. I'm going to invest in you. And it was a slightly maverick person at British Gas who had a vision and a budget. <laughs> with Hubbub, you were doing a lot of work with corporates. And I was going to ask you about that, but I hadn't realised that Global Action Plan, right from the beginning, had companies like British Gas. Yes, it didn't set out like that mm. but I think how did you find that because friends of the earth didn't like working with corporates no. in those days how did you cope with the the environment brand and the social founder brand and the social impact brand and these corporates who were seen as the baddies at the, very much at the time yeah well I think that comes back to my initial set of values which was more about being practical and proactive uh-huh. So for me, Friends of the Earth were, were kicking at a door yeah. um, to try and get the message out there. And then partly due to their success and others, the door opened, but they, was, they still went in kicking. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, well, you know, now the door's open. How do, how do we make the most of that opportunity? And that does involve working with major corporates. And when you work with any corporate, there'll be bits of it you completely disagree with and bits of it that you completely agree with and there'll be individuals likewise. Yeah. And for me, it's always finding the bits you agree with and the individuals who support you yeah. and work with those. And I think, I mean, that's a theme that's probably grown through through my career. So Hubbub is now five and a half million this year and it's probably about 95% corporate funded, yeah. which is very unusual. So I think... We started off as community, then we went to local authorities, then we did more business work and schools work. And basically, like I said, there was never a clear business plan at the start. There was a set of principles and and we jumped our lily pads. Not having a business plan wasn't a problem. Mm. But what the problem was, and this is the thing I learned very starkly, was not embedding and sticking to the values at the beginning. So... So if you don't have those values truly, truly embedded, not just within yourself, 
but much more importantly with everybody you recruit and, yes. and work with then your your lily pad jumping gets you further and further away from from where you set out oh, interesting well i must say that didn't come across for, to us on the outside no. but how did that make you feel and what did you do about that how did you go back to the values so did I, I didn't i i got to the point where well first of all i think i have found as sort of spirit which is, I like Jeopardy and I like setting things up. Mm, and then mm. I'm absolutely rubbish at running things. I've oh, decided. Interesting. When did you realise that? Uh, I probably realised it quite early, but <clears throat> whether I accepted that realisation was quite a bit further on. So I realised, you know, because you end up starting doing bits you don't enjoy and you don't do those so well. And I think a global action plan, I got to a point where the organisation was doing really well. It was financially stable. It was doing lots of consultancy work. And I, I, I realised I was coming to the office getting grumpier and grumpier. And everybody coming in looked happier. Yeah. And I was like, well, there's only one miserable sod in this office, <laughs> and, that, and that's me. So, and, and that was after how long? That was about 15 years. Yeah, that is yeah. quite a long time. Yeah, it is a long, long yeah. time. Who did you talk to about that? So I spoke to some really great people. There's, there's a man called Chris Rapley, Professor Chris Rapley, who ran the Science Museum. He was one of the original scientists who discovered the hole in the ozone layer. And I had a really long conversation with him. And he basically said, don't be the misery in the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and was he, was he completely independent yeah. from Global Action? Yeah, he, he, on the board he, had been a, he had been a board member. Oh, right. Board, so he knew you he, well. He knew me and he and knew the organisation. Yeah. yeah. And then there were a few other people, and I just and I realised I had to get out, um, and I also realised that I truly had to leave because when you've set something up and you've nourished it, you know, you 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 have to cut the strings. I felt at the time it was like just right. I I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave the organisation in a place where whoever comes in afterwards, you know, has enough time and yeah. money and resource yeah. to make sure what. And that took quite a long time. So, so my so, leaving was, was quite slow. I so identify with you on that one, actually. Um, and that whole dilemma about, do you stay involved in some way on the board? Or my chairman, when I said I was going to leave media trust, said, oh, you can, you can become the president or something. Patron. And yeah. be paid three days a week. Exactly, yeah. And I said, well, you know, you'll never be able to recruit a chief executive a new chief executive, they think that I'm hanging around yeah. for three days a week. Yeah. I, I do think it's quite important to make the break, like, like you, but yeah. a lot of founders don't. Yeah. They stay involved yeah. as president or yeah. whatever and, yeah. and drive everyone mad. Yeah. And as Chris said, don't be the bad smell in the room. And I think that's, oh, what, that's, that's, that's what you phrase. would be, I think. Yeah. Because and somebody would come in and do it differently and, and I know you'd sit there scowling yeah. at them going around. And were you confident that the organisation could continue? Yeah, we. I, I left it with a lot of money in the bank. Fantastic. Um, uh, contracts. I mean, in actual fact, the person who replaced me didn't last very long, mm. and the organisation stumbled. Mm. But it's now doing well again. Great. Yeah. yeah. So going back to while you were there at Global Action Plan, what were the things you were most proud of? And oh, I, I think the Sky relationship was fabulous. We developed. Schools, programs that, that I think worked for so many people. Yeah. We helped transform a lot of business schemes through their employees. Mm-hmm. And what's really heartening is that you can still see the legacy of those things. You know, you can see, oh, you know, I understand why that's happening in this organisation yeah. because of this. Yeah. So I think Sky have gone on to do some astonishing 
programs. You know, the, the, I mean, they're doing the whole sort of plastics campaigns yeah, the at the ocean moment, rescue ocean campaign rescue, which is astonishing. Yeah. And I know that when we started with them, you know, we, we, we helped them totally change the way they think about environmental campaigning and what they do. So I think, you know, when you see that legacy... So you can feel really proud yeah. of what you've done with Global Action Plan. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons we wanted you on the first series of the Social Founder podcast, actually, because I know that Global Action Plan it did leave an amazing legacy and still is doing great work. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it was quite groundbreaking working with Sky at the time because at Media Trust, we were also working with Sky, yeah. who launched uh, the community channel with us. And a lot of charities were furious with us working with Sky. In those days, it wasn't seen as something that you should do if you were a charity. No, it was kind of like the evil empire. It was the Murdoch. The Mur- yeah. yeah. So did, was that an issue for you around the brand? That, going back almost to what you said about British Gas at the beginning, Global Action Plan always juggled, it seemed to me, working very well with corporates, sailing quite close to the wind with corporates, uh, like British Gas and Sky, but at the same time having amazing impact in directly into schools and community groups around the country, but also with the media. How difficult was it for you as the founder and the leader to juggle those two it's, it's inc- imperatives? It's incredibly difficult, you know, because you're, you're always going to get kicked by the dark greens for working with the big evil corporates. And there are companies that I've started to work with and you get a few months in and think, this is greenwash, it's, it's not real. Yeah. Um, and it's then how to extract yourself from that yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. But with Sky, I mean, actually, you know, they were obviously acutely aware of the the Murdoch legacy. Mm. And I'm sure, as you found when you worked with them, part of their strategy was to to take the company in a different direction under Jamie Darich. And, you know, they have. And you soon get to realise that they, you know, that at their core, they believe that what they're doing is the right thing across well, the business. Well, we found it amazing working with Sky, actually, at the Media Trust, and still still do through the TV channel. They are so can-do, so quick at making decisions. Their values are very strong. And getting back to you as a social founder and advice for other people in this situation, I think the juggling the money coming in, the corporate relationships with the social impact and the work with charities and communities can be so hard. Yeah. It's completely different to running a commercial business where totally. you just have to think about the bottom line. Yeah. Here, you, as a social founder, you're having to weigh up always, can I be financially sustainable? Who's going to pay the bills and the salaries with the social impact? Yeah. What were your dilemmas there and how did you get that balance right? So I think, I mean, again, this is where a great board comes in handy because, you know, you can go and take, and I still do it all the time, and we just turned down a relationship with a very big company at Hubbard because I had doubts it went to the board and it was like, you know, it was a six-figure number. We're not (gasps) going to take it. That is brave. So so you always have to make those decisions. And the Mm. trouble is everybody outside the organisation doesn't see those decisions, so Mm. they say or you're working with evil ex, but mm. they don't know, you know, well, actually, we haven't worked with those people for, mm. you know, because of our principles. Mm. But nobody sees that bit. They mm. just see who you're working with. Mm. So it is a constant juggle. And you get more tuned to where the line should be. But yeah. I think the, the other thing that, that I would say to anybody setting up a social enterprise is don't close your eyes to where new expertise and new values and new ways of working can come into your organisation. So you, you, you hit on the head with Sky. 
they're a can-do organisation. They operate very quickly. They have incredibly high standards. Yeah. You know, and for a charity to work to that set of expectations from a corporate partner yeah. is incredibly healthy because most charities are grant-funded. Yes. And most grant givers are fairly gentle, to be honest, in their expectations and you just have to send them a report after three months or six months yeah. and you can say it's going well and they can say, oh, thank you, you know. Mm. But when you're working with a corporate, you're on a, like a day-to-day or week-to-week time frame, mm-hmm. you have expectations, you mm-hmm. have to deliver it. And that leads through to the culture and the organisation. So having that sort of interface with the corporate world for a social enterprise in terms of how efficiently you operate and what you do and the standards you deliver is really important. Fantastic. Have you written up these skills anywhere? Because (laughs) actually there's there's not very much around giving advice on how to work with corporates. It's something... Maybe you could do it for social founders, actually. We might might commission you to to write up some tips. I I mean, there's an amazing organisation called Cause and Effect run by Manny Amadi, who every year does uh, a barometer of relationships between the corporate sector. Oh, we'll we'll, we'll make sure there's a link to that on the social founder website. Because... You know, where, you, you said it, where does the money come from? I mean, yeah. as a founder, you've got your values and the money and these, yeah. these two things that fight against each yeah. other. Yeah. And so I'm always thinking, where's the money come from? And if you look at the world where it's going, corporate's desire to partner with credible NGOs is growing. Government money is shrinking. Yes. Local authority money is virtually non-existent. Charitable trusts are absolutely bombarded. Yeah. The public are getting very sceptical about things. So actually having that corporate interface for a starter, a social starter, yeah. is really important. Yeah. Let's talk now a little bit more about that process of leaving Global Action Plan and making the decisions to set up a new organisation. Yeah. So what's the story there and how did you go through that process? And <laughs> what were the good things about it and the bad things and the tough times and the easy times and, yeah. the, and the founder spirit yeah. that you have? Yeah. So, so, you, yeah. so was it exciting? So this is my belated midlife crisis. So I decided I had, at the time, probably about 10 to 12 years of good working life left, you know, where I was in my state of life. Um, I so, should say that Trun is actually very young. <laughs> 57, that's not young. Are you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you look um, a lot younger. So, um, so I thought, right, what am I going to do? Yeah, so you were how old then? When you... That was five years ago, so 52. It was only five years ago that you yeah, left. Yeah. Right. So, so I decided, right, I want to make a difference in the world and I, and I want to use everything I've learned mm. to do something different. Um, so that's where I started. So um, you'd already... You'd all, were, you, were you starting to think about this while you were still going through the process of leaving Global? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, about so you were three juggling years how, how do I make sure Global Action Plan is in a really good place when yeah. I leave it? What am I going to do next? What's my, yeah. Did you think, like I did, what's your brand story going to be as well? Because I was very nervous about leaving Media Trust, that I, my, everything to do with me, both through work and home, was associated with the Media Trust. And yeah. if I wasn't at Media Trust or part of Media Trust, who was I going to be? It was quite a crisis. Uh, yeah. Did you have that at all? No, I, I, I think my biggest thing was whatever I do, if I, I can't bugger up because if I bugger up, that's, that's me done. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it was yeah, the, yeah. It yeah was, definitely. Yeah, I don't think I would put it as quite... I didn't think it was the brand, but I thought yeah. it, was, it was definitely a reputation. Interesting. So you'd started thinking yeah. about 
what is now Hubbub. Yeah. Tell us a bit more then. So, so what I did was uh, I wrote a long list mm-hmm. of from Friends of the Earth and uh, Global Action. So I wrote a list of everything I would do more of and ev- everything I definitely wouldn't do again. Oh, I'd love to see that list. <laughs> that was the first thing. Yeah. And the other thing is I knew that the environmental crisis we were facing was growing. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, five years ago, there was massive public either apathy or open hostility to a lot of the environmental messages, particularly around climate change. Yeah. So, so I was like, well, you know, we've got the scientists telling us one thing on one hand and public disengagement on the other. So why? Yeah. Um, and so there were two people at Global Action Plan I had huge respect for. And I, I also, one of my things on my list was don't do this on your own again. Um, oh, just, I was going to ask you what were the sort of top things yeah, that you would do and you well, wouldn't do. Well, that was one of them. So they were still, still both working at Global Action and we'd disappear out for coffee breaks to coffee shops and just talk and talk and talk about what was going on. And we did analysis of what organisations were talking to the public about environmental issues. Yeah. You know, what was their tone? What organisations did we like? What did we, Who did we respect? Yes. And between us, the three of us, we came up with the concept of Hubbub. So, right. so we wanted a lifestyle organisation that had, like, the tone of voice of something like Innocent, uh-huh. that wasn't preachy, that yeah. was had a totally different look and feel to every other environmental charity out there. Which it does, actually. Which it does, yeah. 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 We chose the name Hubbub deliberately, because we wanted to make a noise, but, you know, it's quite an obscure name. It's mm. not a name we'd associate with an environmental charity. Mm. So we wanted people to be inquisitive. Mm-hmm. And we set some core values that, that we keep coming back to about, you know, what is it that makes us different? Mm. And what do we keep doing? Mm. And um, what are those core values? So the core values are to talk to people about things they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's the homes they live in, the food they eat, the clothes they wear and uh, their neighbourhoods. Yeah. So we we don't go into it on an environmental standpoint. We come into it very much from a, a lifestyle standpoint to collaborate with like-minded businesses, to run exceptional campaigns which are fresh and different based on the best academic thinking. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, the academic side. Yeah, yeah. to measure everything yeah. openly, yeah. to share the results, both good and bad, yeah. um, to give away findings and... The last one was to put the ambition of change above the organisation. So we didn't care if nobody had heard of Hubbub, but if we inspired a change, that, wow. that was the most important thing. those are incredible values. That's an amazing list. Yeah. That's very inspirational. I was just listening to you say those the, that list and feeling quite kind of shivery up my spine, actually, because it's so powerful. Really, really powerful. So... I want to hear about the campaigns that you've been... Well, rather, I want the listeners to hear about your campaigns, but I just want to go back to the thing you were saying about working not on your own this time. Yeah. And that was part of your list of not of things you didn't want to do. Yeah. With the other two people, did you... Have you set it up as co-founders? Because I think of you as being the founder of yeah. the club. Yeah, so we're... But are we're, you actually three... We're called three co-founders. Oh, and how's that working? Yeah, it because works. Because we, we do at Social Founders, we do have quite a few uh, dilemmas people have around... Yeah co-founders they, yeah. they love their co-founders and then sometimes they hate them yeah <laughs> and there are terrible stories of i mean i it. i'm the ceo you know was, that's why i assumed you yeah. were the main founder yeah and yeah. i think that's you know hubbard would never be hubbard without heather and, heather and gavin the other mm-hmm. two what's um, their role 
So formally, informally. So Heather is like creative genius. So the look. That's a nice. And, is that her title? Yeah, we should be. So <laughs> yeah. the look and the feel of, of the organisation yeah. is hers. Yeah. And and Gavin is just this astonishing sort of collaborator person who can build relationships with businesses and, and right. deliver great campaigns. And are you all on staff? You're all paid. Uh, yeah, we're all paid. Three co-founders. Yeah. I really like her. Yeah. And what what kind of structure did you set up? Did you set up as a charity? Or? So so one of the principles was to be a charity uh-huh. because people associate things with charities, which is, you know, they're a bit worthy and maybe not that fast. You know, it's ha- interesting, isn't it? The charity brand, it's yeah, got it's, two extremes. It's a, yeah, yeah. it can be quite stuffy. And if you add environment charity onto it, you immediately get into images of people yeah. cuddling a tree. But you knew you wanted to be a charity. We wanted to be a charity because I didn't want any chance of money we made seeping out of the organisation. I wanted to be able to categorically say to any company, if we make a surplus with our relationship <coughs> with you, the money stays within the organisation to do other things. S- subsequently, we've actually set up a social enterprise. What's the balance between the trading company social enterprise so and the charity and yeah. how do you how do you how do you handle all that yeah so so on my original list <laughs> oh yeah you're, you're gonna have to read in go, this list go, and send it to us to my please list. we really want like, it sort of what am i good at and what am i bad at um and what do i like doing and what don't i like doing and and for me i love i love the the innovation the setting up that you know that first phase that's mm. that's the bit that I get interested in. So do I actually. Um, <laughs> I wonder if all, all of our social yeah, players in our maybe. network yeah. feel the same. So basically, when we set up the the, the charity, we said right, we're not going to go more than seven people. So we totally busted that one. But we weren't going to, and we were going to be small and innovative and fleet footed. And that's yeah. where the giving away thing. So like, we're going to try it. We're going to prove it. If it yeah. works, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll give it away. Fascinating. And you said you totally busted the seven people. How yeah, many yeah. are you now? Uh, we're currently at 30. <laughs> and so, growing. Yeah, and growing. Yeah. So, and then, but then when we tried to give stuff away, we found that quite often there wasn't a recipient organisation. So the social enterprise was like, well, I don't want to end up sort of running things and making things more efficient and mm. extracting more financial mm. value from stuff. Mm. But we need to do that mm. to create scale. So really, the the broad thing is that the charity innovates and creates. Uh-huh. And then if something works that we can't give to anybody else and is financially viable, mm. we give it to the social enterprise. And the social enterprise is wholly owned by wholly the charity? Wholly owned by the charity. Right. The surplus oh. it makes comes back into charity right. and who runs the social enterprise um, somebody who, who likes doing the things that you don't like doing exactly uh, a guy called Alex who's yeah. absolutely brilliant yeah. yeah and you and again I I think I know the answers because it is quite clear on your website and everyone should have a look at the Hubbub website they should what's, what's the hubbub.org.uk hubbub.org.uk check it out everyone because it's fascinating but the, I noticed that you have two different boards, yeah. one for the charity and one for the social enterprise, yeah. and there's some overlap. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that works and, and what you'd advise other social yeah. entrepreneurs, social founders do. So we've gone through a bit of a bumpy road on that one. Oh, um, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us um, more. So we knew we needed different sorts of skills. You know, if, mm. if, if you're trying to get value out of a product, you need different skills to somebody who's trying to create an innovative thing something new so you, you need different skill sets so the boards have different skill sets and 
the boards are legally separate and used to meet separately. Yeah. And the danger of that, we quickly found, is that the lines sort of start to drift apart quite yes. quickly because the board, the, the enterprise, the social enterprise board are making decisions without understanding the full, bigger picture that the charity is working towards. So now they're two technically separate boards, but they meet together. Ah, oh, right, right, right. Which is, yeah, how I've always worked, yeah. done it as well. And, Media and, Trust that, and the, that's together. totally transformed the dynamic. You're on both boards. Legally, as an employee, I can't be recognised on the board of trustees, but I am on the board of enterprise. And you have the same chair for both boards? Different chairs. And has that created an easier model and less conflict of interest? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think at the moment it's working really well. Yeah. So if you end up with a lot of surplus in the social enterprise, yeah. who makes the decision about whether that surplus is reinvested in the social enterprise or put into the charity? Uh, so it's done together. Mm. Um so the last thing you want to do is suck all the surplus out of the social enterprise so you stifle growth. Yeah. So you need to reinvest to grow. Yeah. Um, and then any surplus that's left over goes to share. And also it's partly dependent on what the financial situation of the charity is. Yes. So at the moment the charity can afford to be quite generous with the social enterprise yes. and help it grow quicker yeah. um, because we don't need the surplus that they're generating. What's the turnover of the two together? So the turnover of the... This year, the turnover of the charity will be about five and a half million, and the social enterprise is probably just going to be under a million. So that's pretty good for five years. You've yeah. got six and a half million turnover across the group. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And congratulations. Yeah, bit now, of shock. <laughs> I, I would love you to tell our listeners... In case they don't know about Hubbub, and if you don't know about Hubbub, you've got to find out fast because it's amazing. Can you tell us just a story of one of your favourite campaigns? I I have a favourite, but I'll tell you after you've told us your favourite. Can I do two? Okay, very, very yeah. Quick. yeah. So if, you, if you've I, got the time, we've got the time, so, definitely. So it's one of these great things where you have a set of values, but you haven't got a business plan. So we, we started doing anti-littering campaigns, which I never thought we'd do under the Neighbourhoods Hub. Uh-huh. Anti-littering littering campaigns. Yeah. Litter. Yeah. Yeah. And we did a load of research and we basically found cigarette butts were most the most commonly dropped item, uh-huh. which contains plastic, by the way. Huh. And so basically we ended up and we created a voting cigarette bin uh, with sports questions on. So who's your favourite footballer? Is it Ronaldo or Messi? Vote with your cigarette butt. Oh, um, hilarious. And, and, and it cut cigarette littering by 25-30% immediately. Whoa. Um, Where did you trial it? Uh, in uh, Villiers Street in London, which runs between Embankment and uh, Charing Cross. Um, yeah, I, many years ago, I used to work down there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we had one bin. It got, I think it got 78,000 Facebook likes on its first day. You've always been brilliant on social media, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was Lad's, yeah. Lad's Bible covered it, bizarrely. Anyway, th- so the very short story of that is we then started getting inquiries. The social enterprise, first thing it did is basically manufactures and sells the bins as part of the activities. Interesting. Last month, we sold £50,000 worth of bins no. globally, and that's all started from that one project. That so, is a great story. So that's, that's, so that's, that's one of your favourites. Yeah. And the other one? Well, the other one I love, and it's a story that's ongoing, is our relationship with Starbucks. Ah, um, yeah. So we did a lot of projects around coffee cup recycling. And as part of that, we got very close 
into close conversation with Starbucks. And we were basically saying to Starbucks, you need to encourage more people to use reusable cups. Mm -hmm. So it was about 2.5% of their customers were using reusable cups. We worked in 36 of their stores to put a 5p charge on disposable cups. Yeah. Uh, and that, This was when, Trin? This was two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. Well, no, actually, it was about a year and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. And they did it on 36 stores. They gave the money to us. And it doubled the number of people using reusable cups. Didn't have any negative impact on their business. So yeah. they then decided to take that trial to all 900 plus stores yeah. across the UK yeah. that generates 5Ps from each of those stores. And you're still getting the 5Ps? And we're, we're getting the recipients. That's incredible. And then what's amazing for us is that we're working with a whole variety of people to use that funding to transform single-use plastic. So we just a month ago announced a million pound fund to invest in uh, for people to bid into to apply for money to boost the amount of coffee cup recycling facilities in their locality. And that's your money. Yeah. Not so, not one of the corporates you're working with. Yeah. That's brilliant. So that's really having an impact now. Yeah. Yeah. Across across the UK, do you work? Or? Across the UK, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what was your favourite out of interest? It's interesting, my favourite one, uh, not because of knowing the impact, but just because of the visual images, was the one where you created a boat out oh, of plastic. Oh, the plastic fishing, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you tell us the story of the plastic fishing, because so, so that, was, that was just, that caught my imagination, it really did. So that started with an amazing school in London called Canary Wharf College. Uh-huh. One of the parents, Christine Armstrong, saw that the Dutch did plastic fishing, and made boats out of plastic. She said, wouldn't it be... I sat in the most boring meeting I've ever sat in, and she, <laughs> she, she sort of mentioned it in passing. So I sought her out. Uh, she persuaded the school where her children were to go and try plastic fishing in conventional boats. Yeah. And just, just to, so that our listeners really understand what you mean by plastic fishing, can you just explain? It, it's literally grabbers and nets going around, in this case, Docklands, fishing out plastics. Fabulous. And it's the kids that do it. And the, the kids were doing it in the yeah. first instance. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, we said, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could make a boat out of 90.9% recycled plastic? We, we linked up with the Queen's Boat Builder in Richmond, uh, a firm in Scotland. So Clever. they made plastic wood. Clever. The boat builder built the boat. Yeah. We launched it. And what we do is we sell trips to companies as part of their team building exercises so you're still using the boat so we've actually now got seven oh, wow. uh, coming through yeah. uh, or we'll have seven we've got seven commissioned so we have a fleet of plastic boats we never thought that wasn't in the business plan and yeah and they're now scattered they will be scattered all around the country and it's for us it cleans up rivers of plastic it tells the story of the circular economy which is if you keep plastic in the system it can be recycled into amazing products yeah. it educates people uh, and it's fun. <laughs> well, you know, I was just going to say the fun word because a lot of uh, a lot of people think of social enterprise and charities and, as being quite worthy, like yeah. you were saying. Yeah. But actually, I love your phrase "founder spirit" because it, it captures the sense of fun and energy linked to innovation and to making social change happen. And, and Trin, you've done an amazing job, and I can't wait to see what happens next with Hubbub. I hope you're not going to stop. You have to be like, you know. Some of our social founders never retire. Yeah. Like, you know, one of, one of our social founders is Dame Stephanie Shirley, Steve Shirley. Yes. She, you know, she's, she's just going to go on making social change happen yeah. all her life. And she's in her you know, late 80s, early 90s now. So, yeah. So well, we're, think, not, we're, we're not expecting you to stop. Well, yeah, but I think, I think what I've learned is, is you actually need an end point. 
Is that um, what you're thinking? Yeah. Can you tell us publicly about that? Well, I think... We, we can cut it out of the podcast. No, I, I, th- I think, I mean, what I learned at Global Action Plan is you've got to plan for succession. And and actually what's very different for me in this point in time is that I can talk to my trustees openly about that. You know, it's not going to happen anytime soon, yeah. but we can start planning for it and working out how, how that's going to happen. Yeah. Have you given the trustees a fixed date in I've mind given them an or... indication. Right. And I've also said, I actually, in this instance, don't want to walk away completely, but I just want to do the bits I'm good at uh-huh. over less time so I can do other stuff outside of it. Do you worry that your potential partners, a new business coming in and everything, will will get to hear of you leaving and then not want to be involved? Is that is, no, you know, I, how I, much is your personal brand? I, I don't... Because the other thing I've tried to do is basically spread the competency within the team. So we have a very unusual management structure at Hubbub. We call it Batman and Robin. A Batman runs a project and is supported by a team of Robins, which means that, first of all, it means we can do lots of campaigns together because there are individual people responsible for their own campaigns. But more importantly, the knowledge and expertise about how to deliver incredible campaigns is spread between an amazing group of people. Who are the, the, the Batmen? Who are the Bat people? And, and, and they the can be, people, yeah. yeah, they can be uh, at any level in the organisation. So, you know, it can move it. around. So I think in terms of robustness of delivery and the yeah. breadth of stuff we're doing for quite a small team yeah. is huge. So you need to be able to trust everybody to do an amazing yeah. job. It sounds like you've got an agency model, a bit it, like an it, ad it's, agency it's, model. Comp- it's exactly an ad agency model. Yeah. Well, we'll look and see what happens because you've obviously got other ideas in oh, mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've got a few things. Yeah, yeah, yeah both at Hubbub, but it sounds like some other things outside Hubbub as well. Yeah. So you, you've given us amazing advice all the way through this interview, but do you have one or two key tips that you would pass on to people who are listening to this podcast who are either themselves social founders at various stages of their career or perhaps are thinking of setting something up? I mean, I think the first one is the values, if especially as a social enterprise, mm-hmm. is work out what your values are. Values are more important than the business plan, as far as I'm concerned. If, if you stick to those values, you will sound true to your beliefs. The organisation will have a core and a heart. So I think having those values and really ensuring that they're totally understood and embedded by everybody you work yeah. with, I think yeah. is crucial. Fantastic. Don't do it on your own. Yeah, um, it's so interesting that you say that. And it, it means because you need you need a supportive. I mean, I have an amazingly supportive family. You know, my wife's incredibly supportive. You yeah. know, she understood that you take risks, which can have implications when you've got mortgages and kids. Yeah. So you need you definitely need that. And I think my third piece of advice is the best time to raise money is before you actually do anything. People love ideas. Yeah. Uh, and then. It, Delivering them is quite difficult. So the more money you can raise at the beginning, at concept stage, the safer your organisation will be. In. Oh, we talk about, in our in our social founder events, we talk a lot about the joys as well as the challenges of yeah. being a social founder. What What's the moment when you've just felt pure joy because this is just really working and really amazing? I think it's two things, and, mm. and I don't think it, it, it's it's not one hit of joy. It's like, So I think for me, joy comes in... You know, when you have a, you've turned a conversation with a business into something which you know is going to be transformative. That's, that's a great one. word, transformation. And, yeah. and then the other thing that I get, get actually increasing delight about is seeing 
giving the opportunity for amazing people to develop in an organisation. So when you come into a room and you see, you know, we've got have people with us who've been there virtually from the start, and they're astonishing. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the legacy piece is that, you know, I can get hit by a bus, but I know that there's a group of people who, who would just carry on basically who've learned so much through the values and the yeah. inspiration the creativity yeah. and the opportunity yeah yeah, yeah. oh that's a fantastic and that's, those are some great words to end this podcast on so I can't thank you enough and we're going to watch with enormous interest what happens next yeah let's hope a boat doesn't hubbub. sink oh, <laughs> I, I want to ride in that boat actually maybe we can do a social founder event on yeah, the boat yeah that'd be good so we'll be watching yeah hubbub we'll also global action plan because that's you know that's yeah. going strong and the next stage that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. Do subscribe to the podcast. We have some fantastic guests coming up. You can also sign up to our newsletter on our website, www.socialfounder.org. Then you can hear about our events, blogs and founder stories. You can follow us on Twitter at Social Founders. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please do leave us a great five-star review. This will really help spread the word. And of course, if you are a social founder or even thinking of becoming one, let me know. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org dot org dot uk